verses which are foundational to our understanding of the gospel, which the Christian should all but know by heart. So let me remind you of what Paul says in these two verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And let us pray together. Holy Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for giving the law. We thank you for the knowledge that it brings. Uh, but we also thank you for this other knowledge that we come by the gospel of another righteousness and another way. For we learn things from the law which alarm and terrify us. And we thank you that uh, the scripture is so clear about this. That it does not teach salvation through the law. It says so explicitly. We are still contending for these things along with the reformers and with Paul in the early church. And we ask you, O God, that, that the pulpit would always be a place that affirms this one and only gospel and that the pews as well equally would own this one and only gospel. And so now as it goes forth once again, we ask that you might add your blessing and your illumination, O Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come here now to the final point of this broader section, which began in chapter one, verse 18. As you know, uh, a very, very simple synopsis of Romans would be something like uh, introduction and greetings, the bad news, the good news, and then how you should live in light of the good news. So we're wrapping up what is now considered the bad news, and then we'll have a lengthy treatment of the good news. And then once we finally come to chapter 12, Paul will tell us how we ought to live in light of the good news. So uh, the beginning of this was chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul states his theme that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that uh, statement, thesis statement, proposition, whatever you want to call it, or that doctrinal statement, he then works out in detail. And we have been at pains uh, to, to work it out along with him and to understand uh, the, the arguments that Paul presents in favor of this idea, namely, again, the revelation of wrath, the wrath of God from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul makes a series of assertions, but he also meets a variety of objections. But what we find here is that his work is finished in terms of stating his case and meeting his objectors. And the only thing now that's left for him to do is to sum up the matter, to conclude it, and then to move on uh, to what we're calling the good news or the gospel. Uh, having stated the bad news, the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven, he will then begin to expound the righteousness of God, which has been manifested from heaven at the cross of Jesus Christ. But as we find ourselves here at the end uh, and, and, and are seeking to sum it up and to conclude and then to move on, uh, I want, as my first point, to review the overall argument that has led us to this point, to summarize uh, the main points of chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 18. And then we will be prepared, as our second point, to consider what he's saying in those two verses. Remember here what the basic picture Paul is painting, the portrait, the portrait of humanity uh, that he makes uh, which he tells us again and again, the Jew and the Gentiles shared in common. Uh, and so his preaching resembled that of Jesus. He has as much to say to the Jew in his supposed righteousness as he does to the Gentile in his sinful living. And the portrait has been this. 
There are three characteristics of this portrait. First, it is one of total depravity. That man is universally wicked in all of his faculties. And that's what Paul uh, had just described in the previous passage. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. That catalog of vices that he lists off from a series of quotations from the Old Testament. But that isn't the only place that he makes the case. When he was speaking to the Jew earlier in chapter 1, excuse me, the Gentile, he says uh, in verses 19 through, uh, let's see, uh, no, no, uh, verses, yes, 19 through 32, he says, 29 through 32, excuse me, being filled, another portrait of total depravity, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, Maliciousness, full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent. Pro- I, I don't, I don't need to finish it, but you get the picture. He's describing uh, a man who is sinful, almost beyond measure. He says that to the Gentile, but then to the Jew. If you go to chapter two, when he speaks to the Jew, he has a similar portrait. Chapter two, verse twenty-one through twenty-four. He says, "You therefore who teach another." Do you not teach yourself? You who preach a man should not steal. Do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so Paul is saying that it doesn't matter from from which vantage point you view humanity whether the Jews who are under the law and boasted in the law and pretended to keep it, or the Gentiles who simply disregarded the law and lived lives of abject sin, you will always find the same thing. You will find that humanity is universally lawless and sinful. The picture is one of total depravity first. And as a result of this, Paul is saying that man, number two, is totally without excuse before God. As a lawbreaker, he always imagines that he has his reasons which, of course, always satisfy himself. But these reasons Paul reveals and exposes uh, amount to nothing before God and the justice of his law. And so he says to the Gentile, chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. Again, in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. But then to the Jew, he says in verse 1 of the next chapter, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for, for you who judge practice the same things. And so again, you see, Paul is saying it doesn't matter. Who you are, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, or what your excuses, because it all amounts to the same thing. And that is that man is inexcusable for his sin. And this is something which he is aware of in reality deep down. And because of this, number three, we understand why it is that God's wrath is being revealed. Chapter one, verse 18, the leading assertion. It's because man is so sinful and he is living constantly in a state of rebellion, one in which he knows better. And yet he lives in spite of his knowledge, whether the Jew in his knowledge of the law or the Gentile in the knowledge of his conscience. 
He's always doing what he knows he ought not to do. And so his life is seen, Paul conclusively proves, not of one of weakness. Man is not a victim in his sinfulness, even though he's born as a sinner. But man is rather seen as one who is living constantly a life of deliberate and willful rebellion. And the result of that deliberate and willful rebellion and rejection of God is that God is angry with humanity on account of sin. And that his wrath is being revealed against it constantly and continually and consummately on the last day. And so the reality is when Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against uh, the sin of man, he is really describing two uh, vantage points uh, from which or by which it is being revealed. The first, which is the immediate focus of chapter one, is that it is being revealed presently. That presently, in the, in the course of man's sin and rebellion, God is making man aware of his displeasure and his wrath and his anger. This is what Paul says uh, in chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. Therefore, God gave them up, or he gave them over. That's the theme of those five verses. His wrath is seen in the fact that God gave man over to more sin. Not in the fact that God restrained man, but in the fact that he hands him over. And as we witness that, as we are, no doubt, in our own day, witnessing the very unfolding of the same uh, events, men are not only practicing things that shouldn't be uttered, but they're lending their approval. As God is seen almost as it were to push man into further sin, what he is making us aware of is his radical and eternal displeasure for sin. The fact that God is not for the sinner, but he is against the sinner. It's being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But that's only the first vantage point, and it isn't even the ultimate one. We are also aware in the course of what Paul is describing, and this brings us into chapter 2, that God's judgment also will be revealed. Even as it is being revealed, it will be revealed And that the manifestations of it that we experience now in the present are but the birth pangs, Jesus tells us. So that the ultimate reality we know that demonstrates or reveals the wrath of God against the sinner occurs not now, but then at the final judgment on the last day. And all of life, Paul is saying, and certainly this helps us to appreciate uh, the gospel and, and what it is. And how it is presented to us as justification. In other words, something which enables us to be led off and vindicated in God's courtroom. All of life, Paul is saying, ought to be lived in light of the outcome that will occur on that day. Will you be condemned or will you be justified at the bar of God's judgment? The day, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 3 The day which he describes as the judgment of God. Verse 5. In accordance with your hardness of heart. Or or your hardness and your impenitent heart. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath. In the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. Seek for glory, honor and immortal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. But obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, and so on. And so you see quite clearly, Paul is saying, 
It's being revealed right now. But wrath is also being stored up or treasured up to be revealed fully and finally on the last day. And all the issues of life will be settled and resolved on that day. And there is nothing more foolish than to live this life without an eye to that day and the life to come. And yet, having expressed that or painting that basic portrait of humanity and its relation to God, he is also aware at the same time of the objections of the various classes of men which they are apt to raise and which they are still raising against this argument, such as the fact in the instance of the Jew that the Jew possessed the law and beyond that that he was circumcised and therefore, as he thought, he possessed and enjoyed the unbreakable favor and fellowship of God. Or in the case of the Gentiles, does not the fact that he didn't possess the law excuse him? For how could he be judged by a standard he did not possess? You remember these are the arguments of chapters 2 and 3. And these are the objections Paul had to face. They're the objections we still have to face when we present this as the reality that mankind has to face. And he does so with great skill. He tells the Jew that to possess the law provides no advantage whatsoever if you do not keep it, any more than it did for Adam. Adam was not promised uh, unbroken fellowship with God uh, in the absence of obedience. No less was Israel. And he tells the Gentile that every man has some sense of morality in his nature or in his conscience as he's made in the image of God. And so even though Moses didn't give the law to the Gentiles, the Gentiles are still a law unto themselves. Every man alike in one way or the other is aware of the righteousness of God's judgment and the demands of his law because his conscience makes him aware of it. Every man is aware in one sense or another that his life is being lived in the presence of God and under his scrutiny. And that ultimately each one of us will give an account for the life that we lived. And again, the great question is, what will happen on that day to you? Well, this leads Paul to say in the final section, which we considered last time, verses uh, 9 through 18 of chapter 3, that because none are righteous... And that is the universal condition of humanity. There aren't any who actually keep the law or seek after God and so forth that altogether are under sin. Verse 9. That is the universal position of humanity. It's true of every man since the fall. Man is a a rebel by nature. His interest is not with God or keeping his law. His interest, his primary interest, his primary aim and pursuit and desire is sin. It's always sin. So that when we say, for instance, as we often do, that men are sinners, we must realize that what we're really saying is what the apostle is saying here. We're agreeing with the apostle Paul. We're saying that man's basic interest and desire once more, the great pursuit of his life is not God. It is sin. And sin is what defines not only his, 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 uh, all of his desires and actions, And relationships, this side of heaven, but most importantly, sin is what defines his relationship with God. When God views man, he views man as one who is under sin. He is is held captive by it. He is under its dominion. He is a slave to sin. 
That's what it means to say that God views humanity as sinful and he views you as a sinner. One who lives and operates under the dominion of sin. Sin is the sphere of the sinner's existence. And there is no, there are no exceptions to this. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is the reason why all together are under the wrath of God. Both in this life and the life to come. The wrath and the condemnation to uh, the condemnation of God and of the law. It is because all are under sin. Chapter three, verse nine. The last thing I would say about this whole section before we come to the conclusion of it is that it is uh, interesting to notice uh, what Paul says all the way back in chapter one, verse 18. Let me remind you again what he says. He says, for. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And do you realize that when he says that, what he is actually telling us is that the thing that compelled him, and we could even say the thing that made him so eager and excited to preach the gospel, as he has just stated in chapter 1 verses 14 through 17, I'm a debtor to all. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager to preach it to all because I know what it is and I know what it's capable of. But having said that in those verses, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. For. In other words, what Paul is saying is that here is the reason. That he is compelled and constrained to preach the gospel to all men alike. And the reason that he is excited and eager to do it. To see man like this as he really is. Even at his worst. And at his lowest. And yet to realize that the gospel which Paul possesses is able to help man as bad as he is. This is something incredible. It's something amazing. You see, the gospel does not seek to minimize the depravity of man or the sinfulness of man. If anything, it exalts it. It it, it describes man in the worst possible way, except it says this really is as bad as you are. And then the gospel comes to him and it's able to meet him at his worst and at his lowest. And it is there that the gospel proposes to help and to save him. And so do you understand why Paul felt about the gospel as he did? I'm not ashamed of it. I'm eager to share this gospel. Because there isn't a single sinner, as bad as he might be, that it cannot save. But having said all of that, we come now as our second main point to these concluding two verses. And we'll we'll spend the remainder of our time with those two verses. Verses 19 and 20. Begin with verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We just notice as an aside in verse nine, he says all are under sin. Here he says all are under the law. It's the same idea. And the first thing that I would notice uh, about this verse, this concluding verse, is the setting which Paul describes. It's the same one he's been describing all along. You find it in the words before God and in his sight. The whole world may become guilty before God. Verse 19. No flesh will be justified in his sight. Verse 20. 
It is clear that Paul is describing here, and this is the setting he will maintain throughout the letter, he is describing the setting of a courtroom. And he is saying that the judge before whom man must appear is God himself. God is the judge. And man is the guilty, convicted sinner who must stand before him and accept and receive his sentence. And the question which Paul asks you as a guilty, convicted sinner who must appear before the Lord as the judge is, what will you say to him then? What will be your case when you appear before God and he judges the secrets of men? The day when he will render to each according to their deeds. Chapter 2, verse 5, 16, and so forth. And so that's the setting. And there you are before God. And even now, in some sense, your life is being lived in his presence. And God is calling you constantly to live in a certain way. And what is it now that you have to say to God? In other words, what is your reason or what is your excuse? Aware as you are now, we can hope. Paul having convinced us that we really haven't kept the law, that we are lawless rebels. And so it is here that Paul, in this setting, conceives of the law as speaking to man. The law having something to say to man. A message for those who are under it, which Paul tells us is everyone. It isn't just, uh, it isn't just the Jew. It's all men alike, because all men alike are under sin. And God has placed all men under the law in one way or another. In other words, God has made men all alike aware of his law. So it's the law that is calling men as sinners to an account before God. And as it does so, it is telling us something. It is speaking to us. And its message to us is not that we are righteous. No, none are righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek after God and so on and so forth. That's what he just told us. The testimony of the law is the universality of sin. Not the universality or even the presence of a single righteous person. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, which lead us right on up to verse 19. But the, less, the message of the law to man is not that we are good and decent people who just need to try a little harder, do a little bit more to keep the Ten Commandments, and then, well, then God might justify you and forgive your lesser faults. That is not the message of the law. Again, the message of the law is that we are lawless and that we are rebellious and that we are living without God. And that from the standpoint of the law being under it, there isn't any hope for you in the world of ever being considered righteous or being justified in his sight. God will never acquit you. He will never pardon you. He will never declare you just so long as you are under the law. And do you notice what the effect of this message is? Is the law is telling you this. Not here be justified in this way, but rather that you are utterly condemned by your failure to keep it. The effect of the message, or at least what uh, it is meant to do, because it rarely does this. But the one who actually listens to the message of the law as it's speaking to him is silenced. The effect of the law is to stop our mouths like Job. Every mouth is silenced by the law. And if not in this life, then on the last day. On that day, men will have nothing to say as an excuse or as a reason. But you realize that the way that Paul has been proceeding, he has been uh, meeting these many objections along the way. 
He conceives of man as one who's not ready to accept this painful truth about himself. The truth, in other words, that he's a sinner, he's guilty, he's condemned, he's under the wrath of God. He's going to hell. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when you say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against you, he has a great deal to say in response. He conceives of man as still speaking, as always speaking. He's always raising his objections. He's always commending himself before God. Oh, but Paul says, you only prove that you're not listening. You haven't heard the first word that the law has to say. If you listened, then you would stop talking. You would be silenced before the awful testimony of the law. The law is telling you that you are guilty, that you are without excuse, that nothing you can say or do in this life can make things better. You can never justify yourself. The essential testimony of the, of the law to all men is that all alike are guilty before God. That is what it's saying. That is the message of the justice and the judgment of God. And that is the thing, above all, that the last day will make clear. But by way of application, and as a test to you, thinking in terms of your own response to the message that we have been uh, considering in detail for so long, the cardinal test is whether you're still speaking or whether there is something in your heart that objects to this message or some argument or objection that you are still prepared to raise against the judgment of God. If that is how you are, in any way, even in the deep recesses of your heart, then you ought to realize about yourself that the law is still speaking and that you ought to listen, but that you haven't quite listened yet. Because the man who hears what the law has to say is silenced. He is silenced before the awful testimony of the law of God. And the awful reality of the judgment and the wrath of God. Presently being poured out. And finally poured out on the last day. Is there anything, for instance, there was just the case of a minister who is deposed because of this. Is there anything objectionable in your heart to the doctrine of hell, the eternal torments of hell? One of the more difficult truths to accept. But I tell you. If you do not accept it, or if you object to it in any way, well, then the law still is something to say to you. It ought to silence you utterly. You ought to be amazed that there is a single person that ever escaped hell and that we're not all there right now as a result of our sin. You would not object to the judgment of God. You would rather despair of the fact that you have to face it. Unless perhaps God were to provide another way apart from the law. Could such a thing be? But apart from that, you would come to see that your position was hopeless. And you would wonder if there was anything that could possibly help you. But that leads us to the final assertion of verse 20. And let me read that. Therefore, by the deeds of the law. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Therefore, here is the conclusion, the final assertion, the final stroke, I call it. That's the title of the sermon. And this final stroke or assertion can be divided into two main propositions. First negative, then positive. He's making two statements about the law. He's speaking of its impotence on the one hand and its awful potency on the other. First, what it cannot do. The law cannot justify. Not a single person. 
And indeed, he tells us that it was never meant to do so. How does he put it? By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Which is not to deny his prior statements in chapter uh, 2, where he says the doers of the law will be justified. That's true. The only trouble is there aren't any doers of the law. Paul is considering man here as fallen, as utterly devoid of righteousness and obedience. He is under the dominion of sin. And it is in that state, he says, that there is no flesh, that is not a single human being who has ever lived or ever will live, who will be justified in God's sight by the deeds of the law. No one who will be able to stand before the bar of God's justice and be acquitted and declared righteous. Of course, we realize that such persons may be able to convince themselves or others that they are righteous. But the point is that in the sight of God, under his scrutiny, God knows better. And there is no fooling him. In his courtroom, there is nothing less than absolute perfection that deserves to be called righteous. And man, as sinful and fallen, has already lost any chance of achieving that. Try as he might, he will never deserve to be called just or righteous in God's courtroom. And in fact, it would be the very opposite of justice for God to do so. And so here is a truth that man needs to hear. And he can never hear it too often. That there is no justification by the law. God will never consider you as one who is righteous by your own observance of the law, which is what the deeds of the law mean. You can't obey enough commandments to make up for the presence of sin. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You will always fall short. You will always sin. Romans chapter 3 Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all alike together, which means you and me and everyone else. And so this is something that we must be careful to grasp for ourselves or uh, the later presentation in the very next verse and beyond of the gospel will never make sense to us. It will never land. We'll never understand why there was a reformation or why Paul debated with the Judaizers of his day. Not until we grasp this cardinal and fundamental point. Not how justification comes, but first, how it does not come. We will never avoid the errors of of legalism and antinomianism. We will always be prone to false, false gospels. And we'll never understand what all the fuss was about. Until we grasp that there isn't a single person who can be justified by the law. And so now we see in verse 20 that the matter of justification is put squarely before us. And we see that from the standpoint of the law, it is simply impossible. And we are left with the question as to how man then could be justified, if at all. But let us see also what the law does positively. What I describe as its awful potency. Negatively, we know it does not justify, nor was it given in order to do so. That is not the purpose of the law. God did not give the law to Moses in order to justify Israel. We read that earlier in Galatians chapter 3. Well, why did he give it, Paul says, in chapter 3, verse verse 19? What was the point if God had already promised Abraham that he would save his children through a redeemer and would justify them as with Abraham by faith in the redeemer? Why did God then add the the law some 400 years later through Moses? 
Well, he gave it, Paul says here in verse 20, in the second part. As he says in other places, Galatians 3, Romans 7, in order to bring the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, let me read that again. He says, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the Lord said you shall not covet. That's the sense in which Paul is saying through the, the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is actually what, what told me what sin was. It defined it for me. It described it to me. It gave me a true knowledge. It helped me to see it for what it was. Not just as sin, but the sinfulness of sin. And it described not something which is merely theoretical or abstract, but it was describing, as it describes sin, my own self and my own experience and my own sin. When the law said, this is sin, and the man who does this is a sinner, it described myself. It pointed the finger right at me. It was speaking to me. And so Paul is describing not just an intellectual knowledge that man comes to possess. If you read Romans chapter 7, you will realize that is not his thought in the least. But he is describing when he says that the law brings the knowledge of sin, the process of conviction. That as man comes under the law and he listens to its message, and it is the law that makes him aware of sin and his sinfulness. The, the law breaks him. It breaks his heart. It makes him despair of himself. Romans chapter 7 verses 10 and 11. The commandment which was, which was to bring life I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. This is what the Puritans, at least I think it was the Puritans, described as the law work. And every man needs the law work in his life. Every man needs to be broken by the law. Every man needs to see his own sinfulness before God. He needs to be awakened inwardly, not just to the grace of God and the gospel, but uh, even before that, to his own sinfulness. And the awful offense that his sin is to a, holy, to a holy God. Far from justifying, Paul says, the law brings a knowledge of sin. Its work is to convict and to instruct as a tutor in order to lead us on to Christ. And so we're left with the question, if the law cannot do it, if the law cannot justify, if it cannot make me right with God, is there anything that can? And that's the great answer we're about to consider in detail for many, many, many weeks. But to, to pose the question again in another way, if you were to look outside of the law, if you were somehow able to get out from under it, if such a thing were even possible, could you ever find anything that could provide this righteousness that would satisfy the scrutiny of God's justice and his law? And that is the great message of the gospel, beloved. The message of the righteousness of God, the very thing we lacked, is now being revealed. And that it has been revealed at the cross of Christ. And that that is the very thing that God is revealing now to man. Even alongside of the revelation of his wrath is the revelation of righteousness through Jesus Christ and received by faith. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Paul was not ashamed to preach. That's the, the one and the only gospel that... Every preacher must be judged by. Is he preaching this message? Is he offering to me the one and only way of salvation? Is he telling me as a sinner how it is that I could get out from under the law and be justified in God's sight? The righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. 
chapter one, verse 17, for in it, that is the gospel in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And that, again, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that will become our theme. One which will occupy us for some time. But before we ever get there, let us always remember and let us clearly grasp, as Paul says in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen. And let us now come to the table.